You can open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And as we continue our series called Giants, where we're finding spiritual refreshment in the lives of the faithful, this morning we are looking at the life of King David. Now, as we consider this, I want to ask you a question. Uh, what, who comes to mind when you consider people who are great? Often, the type of people that come to mind are just, they excel in various categories. Maybe, as I ask that, you think of a poet who everyone just acknowledges, you know, they're the greatest writer, they're the greatest poet. Maybe it's a musician who just really changed music for you and influenced so many other musicians. Perhaps it's a leader or a politician who is just gifted in their area of leadership and excelled in that way. Maybe it's a military commander or Navy SEAL or someone who's got this mental strength like this. Maybe these are the people that we think about when we are asked, who is the giant of your life? Now this morning, you could make an argument that the person that we are talking about is the greatest in every one of those categories. If David were just a great poet, we would talk about him. If he were just a great king, we would talk about him. If he were just a great musician, we would still talk about him. And yet, David is all of these things. Because he's all of these things, he was used so greatly by the Lord. Think about it for a moment. Okay, think about how David was used by the Lord. As a poet, God would use him to write nearly half of the Psalms, 73 Psalms. As a musician, David would be the one who is called by the highest authority in the land, King Saul himself, to be his personal musician. His reign as king was so exemplary that when the eternal king Jesus comes, the very kingdom of God that he brings is associated with King David. In fact, Jesus' kingship in the New Testament is viewed as the completion and consummation of David's kingdom. The prophets would write of a day when they would get another king who could reign like David did. Not only was David a great poet, a great musician, a great king, he was also a great military commander, and he led Israel in the golden age. He extended the nation of Israel from a relatively small piece of real estate. Their borders were spreading from Dan to Beersheba by the end. Under David's leadership, this small nation of Israel would become a leading world power, and it was all because of the influence and usefulness of one man, David. In fact, David was a man of such extraordinary usefulness that he alone holds the title in Scripture as the man after God's own heart. And so our question this morning as we consider David's usefulness is this, what made David so overwhelmingly useful in the hands of the Lord? Now we're going to zoom in on three specific stories that reveal to us the answer, and as we do, we'll be refreshed by this truth in the life of David. See, this is the truth that David teaches us. Usefulness requires a supreme passion for God. If we desire to be used by God, we must have a great and surpassing and overwhelming passion for God. A usefulness in God's kingdom is something that needs to be of extreme importance to us. You need to know that the leadership of this church, we've given ourselves to this task to plead with people, and myself particular, to the youth of this church, to plead with them to give their lives of the, to the Lord that they might be used by the Lord. Because I specifically think about this day at the end of our lives when we'll look back on our lives and there's a way that you can live 
that King David exemplifies where you live in a way that the Lord uses you. At the end of your life, you look back and you're able to say it was hard, it was painful, it took so much energy, but it was so worth it. Listen, there's also a way to live that at the end of your life, you look back and maybe you've gotten a lot of things, maybe you've accomplished a lot of things, but at the end, the Lord never used you and you will be able to say of your life, I wasted it. I wasted it. Do you see the importance of being used by the Lord? There is a path that we can walk in which God will say, I will use you for my glory, and it requires that we have a supreme passion for him. Now, I want you to see this in the life of David. The first thing I want you to see is that David has a supreme passion for God's pleasure. And so I want to give you a bit of the context of 1 Samuel chapter 16. See, things go well for the people of God when they listen to the people that the Lord has appointed. And so when Israel listens to Samuel's urge to follow the Lord, they're doing well, but the larger story beginning from Judges and going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 is that Israel is on a long and slow drift away from the Lord. When there is obedience in Israel, it is nothing but a small, faint, glimmering ray of obedience that is quickly, come, quickly comes crashing down. Now, as the people increasingly turned away from the Lord, instead of blaming themselves, instead of understanding this was an issue of the heart, instead they blamed the system. And so in 1 Samuel 8, 5, the people ask Samuel for a new king. And they say this, Behold, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now Samuel was not pleased with this request. And it was not just because they called him old. Samuel was not pleased with this because the people wanted a king. Now listen, it was always the plan for the nation of Israel to have a king. But the problem with this was that the people wanted a king that would rule like the nations. They wanted a king that wouldn't lead them in the path to please the Lord. They wanted a king that would lead in a way that pleased them. They wanted a king that wouldn't lead them like the judges that were appointed by God would lead them in the ways of God. They wanted a king that would please them by his actions. And so in 1 Samuel 8.22, the Lord says to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Now see the irony in God saying to Samuel, Obey their voice. This is the God of the universe. This is the king of the universe. This is the one who speaks and creation listens to him. This is the one whose voice is to be obeyed, but God says to Samuel, obey their voice. See, this is the way Romans 1 tells us that God often judges people is by giving them by what they desire, by allowing them to pursue the things that they want. And so God, ironically, allows these people to fashion a king for themselves. Now, the first king of the nation, King Saul, would be a king that pleases the people, and this would provide a stark contrast to David. See, Saul would be the people's choice. He would be the best king you could possibly imagine from the outside, and when David comes along, he would be the king that pleases the Lord. And so from the perspective of human's eyes, the first choice, King Saul, was the correct one. Scripture says Saul came to them, and he was voted Israel's most handsome man. That's a great title to have in scripture if you're going to have one. It said, it said Saul was handsome. Not only was he handsome, he was also taller than anybody by a head's height. And so his appearance combined with his towering presence made him the obvious leader. 
But listen, the life of David will teach us that what God is looking for is not a great resume of accomplishments, but a heart that is devoted to him. What the comparison between King Saul and King David shows us is that when God requires to use his servants for his purposes, his resume is not a resume of paper, a list of performances and capabilities, but it's a resume of the heart. God does not look at your trophy case when he calls you to his surface. God looks at your heart and he wants to see a heart that is devoted to him. And so later kings would recognize this. And so King Asa says this in 2 Chronicles 16, 9. He says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. See, you can have riches. You can have popularity. You can have looks. And yet in the depth of your heart, you don't have a supreme passion for the Lord. You will not be used by him. In the same way, you can carry nothing in your hands. You can have nothing but a supreme passion for the Lord. And this will please the Lord. And he will use you. Now, before a major shift in chapter 16, chapter 15 of 1 Samuel ends with these words. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, immediately in chapter 16, it says, though, God kicks Israel out of the driver's seat. And he says, I'm making the choices now. Now, we know it was always like that. God is always in control. But now he will choose the one who will live and reign as king to please him, the one who can lead the nation in uprightness. And so in verse 1, he says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, I want you to notice the language that God uses with Samuel. He says, I have provided for myself a king. See, the one that God chooses would be the one that he provides for himself. Now, the language in the Hebrew there, uh, that word provide is actually an, an idiom, and it simply just means to look upon someone. If you were to look upon someone, that was your way of saying, I choose this person. Okay, a lot of young adult men are looking upon women right now and wishing that that were the way that it worked, that they could just say, I choose you. It doesn't work like that anymore. Okay, it's not, it doesn't work. But in this time, to look upon someone was to say, I choose you. Now, that's important, so log that in your memory, okay? Samuel replies to this like any sane person would, okay? So let me illustrate, or let me uh, just imagine how the conversation goes with you. God says to Samuel, hey, well, King Saul is uh, currently reigning. Why don't you go and anoint a new king? And Samuel says, are you crazy? If I do that, Saul's going to cut off my head. And God says, oh, and by the way, while you do it, go and take a heifer and sacrifice it with you. And Samuel, look what, it's, look what happens in, verse, in chapter 16, verse 4. It says, and Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Now that is an amazing verse in scripture. Let it be written on our gravestones that we did what the Lord commanded. How much pain we would Stop, we would not have if we just did what the Lord said. If we just read God's word and did what he said. See, this is what Samuel does. And so he comes to Bethlehem and he's with Jesse and the sons at the sacrifice and he gets right to work to find the king. Now at first sight, it seems like it won't be hard to discover who the Lord's anointed is. And so in verse 6, he first goes to the oldest son of Jesse and believes him to be the perfect candidate. And so look what it says. When he came, in verse 6, he looked on Eliab. 
Now remember what it means to look on someone. This means I choose you. And so it doesn't take Samuel long to find the one he believes to be the Lord's anointed, to find the one he believes the Lord will use. And Eliab lives in similar fashion to Saul. He's the choice that made sense. So much so that Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord would reveal to Samuel that he was making the same mistake that the people of Israel made with Saul. And so in verse 7, he says, do not look on appearance. You already had Israel's most handsome man reigning as king, and he was a train wreck. He says, do not look on his height or statue. You had the tallest stature. You had the tallest man reign already. Instead, the Lord says, for the Lord sees not what man sees. The Lord looks on the heart. See, ultimately, David would be the one that the Lord looks upon because in David, the Lord saw a character that was pleasing to him. He looked at David, and on the inside, in his heart, he saw a person who was devoted to him, who gave him great pleasure. And for the Lord, David was the obvious choice so much so that David wasn't even at the sacrifice at the, that time. Now, I don't know how many of you have younger brothers or a littlest brother. I myself am the littlest of three brothers. And one of the things that happens with the littlest brother is that they're always where you don't want them to be. Anywhere you are, they're right there with you. And yet David, he's out in the field, and they have to call him in because among these brothers, there's none that will please the Lord like David does. See, this is a call to the church to be a people who are forging their character. As Christians, we are people who are serious about having a character that pleases the Lord. And so we may have many aspirations in life that are good. We may desire a promotion. We may desire a healthy marriage. We may desire a better income. We may desire a smaller waistline. All these things are good, but none of them are supreme. What God desires of us is to have character that is increasingly conformed to Christ-likeness. And so significant for our sake in this story is to ask, how was David's character forged in the manner of Christ-likeness? And what we see is that for David, he would uh, have a character that pleases the Lord. It would be made in the small moments of his life. See, the fact that Samuel is in town could not have been a small thing for David. I imagine that David would have wanted to be where Samuel was. He would have wanted to be at the sacrifice, but instead he's faithfully tending to the sheep. At the time, it seems small. It seems meaningless. It seems like there's bigger and better things for him to do, but instead he faithfully serves the Lord where he is placed. So this is how character is renewed in us to Christ's likeness. It's in the small moments. Every day you have split-second decisions to make between Christ-likeness and worldliness, between kindness and rudeness, between pride or anger and compassion. See, our day is made up of several small moments that we constantly need to be asking God, how can I conform my attitude, my character right now to Christ-likeness? Listen, as David shortly will meet Goliath, he is proof that those who accomplish great things are in life are prepared in the tiny moments. I love what Phillips Brooks says. He says, character may be manifested in great moments, but it is made in small ones. Character may be manifested in great 
moments, but it is made in small ones. And so when Saul asks David later on if he thinks he could slay the giant, David returns to a day when God, when he's, when he's shepherding the sheep and God delivers him from a lion. It's in this moment that David is prepared for the biggest task of his life, taking down Goliath. See, if we desire to have character that pleases the Lord, the question is not, what do I need to become? The question is, what must be changed today? And so ask yourself at the beginning of the day, what opportunities are there for me to do the things which please the Lord? And as you ask yourself this more and more, increasingly your character will be conformed to Christ-likeness. You'll have a character that pleases the Lord and your passion will be used by the Lord. Second thing I want you to see in the life of David is a supreme passion for God's glory. And for this we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. See, what was being cultivated behind the scenes in chapter 16 is put on full display in the popular story of David versus Goliath. Now, perhaps of all biblical stories, David and Goliath is the most well-known. And one of the reasons for this is that it's become an illustration for people who feel small and insignificant uh, to how they can stand up to their biggest giant, how they can overcome their greatest challenges and obstacles in their life. But I want to suggest and show you from Scripture that David and Goliath isn't so much a story about how you can face massive problems in your life. I do believe that God can help you do that. But the story of David and Goliath is a story of how God can use the smallest person to accomplish mighty tasks when they have a supreme passion for his glory. See, when we look at these men on the outside, we see David and Goliath. We wonder how David, this little boy, could ever take down Goliath. But when we look at the hearts of these men, we no longer see David and Goliath. We see a battle between God and Goliath. We see a battle between David and a dwarf. Now the historical account begins in verse 1 of chapter 17, and Israel and the Philistines have lined up for battle. And in verse 4, we're introduced to the problem. The problem is it reads in verse 4, And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Scripture gives us an in-depth physical description of Goliath. See, Scripture doesn't often do this. doesn't often tell us about what people looked like, but for the sake of this story, it's important that we understand what Goliath looked like. See, he stood at six cubits in a span. He would have been just over nine feet tall. Scripture goes on to describe his armor. It weighed over 125 pounds. The head of his spear alone was 15 or 16 pounds. Goliath was, he looked like Superman, especially when you compared him to David. Not only does he look like Superman, when he speaks, his words have their super words. And so he stands in front of the entire army and he shouts to them. Now, this isn't a war cry. This isn't a military taunt. What Goliath is doing is suggesting that they partake in a common uh, war style of the day called representative warfare. And what happens is one person from the Philistines would come, namely Goliath, and one person from Israel would come, and instead of these whole armies battling, just these people will duel, and it's winner takes all. And so Goliath is calling for someone to come and fight him, and he ends with these important words in verse 10. He says, And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. Look at Israel's response in verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, when Israel heard these words, they should have put on their theological thinking caps. They should have said, 
Israel is God's nation. Goliath is trying to defy Israel. Therefore, I think Goliath is defying the glory of God. And then they should have gone to their past where they had seen people try to stand up against the glory of God. And time and time again, when people stand, try to stand to the glory of God, they are wiped out. And they should have been able to say when they heard Goliath say this, that God can crush this giant easily. But the problem was is that they were too consumed with the glory of the giant and were unconvinced of the glory of God. This is why, as we've looked at David, I've noted that our passion isn't just a passion, it's a supreme passion for God's glory. Because it's not enough just simply to know that God has glory. Instead, our passion for God's glory needs to be surpassing and overriding all other passions. Now, this is where our problem as sinners lays. We are glory seekers. We are magnets to the things that we find glorious. Whatever we believe to be great, we will pursue. The issue is that in our, glory, in our brokenness, we give too much glory to the things that are not glorious enough. If the passion for the glory of God is not at the center of the solar system of your affections, the orbit of all your other affections are out of place. Nothing is correct. All your passions are broken. All your passions are skewed. You begin to fear things that you should not fear like Israel fearing Goliath. You begin to love things that you should not love. You begin to believe you can find joy in things that you cannot find joy in, all because God is not the supreme passion of your heart. See, the greatest problem with our fear, our lust, our anger, our anxiety, our pride, is that we give too much glory to a passion that is not worth our glorying. I was reminded of this two days ago when I attended a Blue Jays game. And when you attend any sports game and you decide that you want to eat there, you need to really start considering some things about your life, don't you? And so I was at the Blue Jays game and I decided I'm going to get dinner there and I'm standing in line and I'm looking at the prices of these things and I'm like, how am I going to afford any of this stuff? And so I imagine, well, maybe, maybe then I'll just buy some chips and you get to the line and, and you put the bag of chips down and they're like, all right, that'll be $14. And you're like, what? $14? I need water too. And they're like, oh, we're going to have to look at a line of credit for that. You can talk to our uh, financial person. They'll help you work that out. And so you buy the food and you go sit down, but it's almost like you can't really enjoy the game anymore because I'm not great at math, but I know when a, a bag has 14 chips in it and it cost me $14, when I eat one chip, that was a dollar chip. And so you're watching the game and you're like, that was not worth a dollar to me. You're drinking the water and you're like, that was not worth it. This was not worth the price that I paid for this food. Now, this is the same way it works when we worship things that aren't God. We always pay too much. Sin always promises what it can't deliver to us. This is why the smallest sin is of eternal significance because when you commit it, you have said that the the all-glorious God is not glorious enough for you. You have said that there's something of greater value than God. You have said that there is a passion worth pursuing that is greater than God himself. See, the problem is like the Israelites, you were wowed by something that is infinitely less glorious than God. Now, up until verse 11, if we didn't know this story, we would begin to believe that this is not going to end well. This is until David appears. 
In verse 12, we read, Now David. See, when David appears, we should be reminded that this is the boy that God has promised to use. This is the man that was, that was a man after God's own heart. And so verse 16 says, Goliath is coming and making the same offer morning and evening for 40 days and none of the people of Israel are standing up and saying, hey, Goliath, you can't do that to the God of Israel. He's too glorious. Meanwhile, David is currently among the sheep serving his father and running back and forth because he's got to serve Saul and play music for him as well. During this time, David's father, Jesse, asked him to run an errand. David is to go to his brothers who are in the army and deliver some bread to them, and he is to take some cheese to the commanders. And so David does this, and when he comes, he has his first encounter with Goliath. Now, the rest of this story will be a series of encounters with David and, and other people that exemplify for, uh, exemplify for us the way that God can use a person who has a supreme passion for his glory. The first encounter in which David proves his supreme passion is with the army that his brothers are in. So I want you to see the comparison between how the army reacts when they hear Goliath and how David reacts when he hears Goliath. See, when the army sees Goliath, they're filled with great fear. They had too much reverence for Goliath and not enough reverence for the Lord to know that the Lord would surely stand against this giant. But look at what happens in verse 23 at the end of chapter, uh, at the end of verse 23 in chapter 17. Goliath speaks and the text says this, and David heard him. There's no fear. There's no wondering what God's going to do with this giant. In verse 26, David categorizes this giant. See, the, when the people spoken of, of him, they just said, this man but when David speaks of him, he says he is an uncircumcised Philistine. He's not a giant. He's not a man. This man is an enemy of God. See, where the army saw a fearsome giant, David sees an enemy of God who has the audacity to, in verse 26, say that he is coming to defy the armies of the living God. David knows that what this man has stood against, he could never overcome. Goliath could never win in a battle with God. See, in, in his first encounter with the army, David proves to us that God will use us when we believe his power can overcome the greatest enemy. In his second encounter, he meets Saul. And Saul, like David's brothers, didn't believe he could take down the giant. But again, David's not relying on his own ability, but on Goliath's choice to stand against the glorious God of the universe. So David, in response, points Paul back to previous victories he had. So Saul questions David's ability to take down the giant, and David says in verse 34, he says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. See, do you hear David? He is sure that Goliath is as good as dead. And just as God deliver, delivered David as a shepherd, so God will deliver David as a warrior. And so Saul, being convinced that David can do something about Goliath, in verses 38 to 40, he, he asked David to try on his armor. 
Now, at the surface of this, it seems like it's a really compassionate thing. Hey, David, you're going to need armor if you're going to fight Goliath. But underneath this is Saul's desire to rob glory from both David and God. Because in this culture, if you were to wear the armor, especially the underarmor, which Saul offers him, if you were to wear a man's tunic, you were to be imbued with his power. You were to be imbued with his presence. And so part of what's happening here is Saul is believing that if David would just wear his equipment, then if David wins, Saul can glory in the victory. Saul can say, it was because he wore my armor. It's because he wore my tunic. But David refuses this because, again, it's not about man, what's, what man is equipped with. It's about confidence in the glory of God that will win the battle. See, God will use us when we desire that he gets the glory. God uses those who want him to get the glory. Now, David's last encounter is with Goliath himself. And in every way, David displayed the confidence that he already had. Goliath is going down because he stood against the glory of God. And so look at verses 45 to 47. Listen to what David says here. It says, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that God, that there is a God in Israel, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Now notice how quickly the battle has begun. See, the length of text that's contributed to the context of this story is infinitely larger than the actual battle itself. And the reason for this is this isn't a story about combat. This is a story about who is more glorious, Goliath, who stands nine feet tall, or the God of the universe. And so we read of the battle in verse 48. It says, When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his head. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. Now Goliath is dead. And as we think about this story, I want you to draw two applications from it. The first application I want you to draw from David and Goliath is that when you understand God's infinitely gl infinite glory, it will give you perspective about your life. See, what separates David from his brothers, from the army, from Saul, from Goliath, it's not his size, it is their belief. Only David believed that God's glory was great enough to stand against this giant. Only David had a proper perspective of the situation because he understood that God has a passion for his glory. And so therefore, David had a passion for God's glory. When we understand God's glory in our life, we are able to face suffering in this world and we're able to face it well because we have the proper perspective of what God is doing with it. 
See, the way that we suffer, the reason that we suffer is not meaningless. God has glory in all things, so much so that 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something stranger, strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and listen to this and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, Christian, in your suffering, God is revealing a greater glory and a greater purpose in it. Now, the second thing I want you to see is who you are in this story. As we look back on the story of David and Goliath, there's many things we can learn from David. And perhaps you've, learned, you've heard a lot of sermons on this story that, that say, just be like David. You got to stand up to big obstacles in your life. You got to stand up to big giants in your life, to big trials in your life. But I want to suggest something else. Perhaps we aren't like David in this story. Perhaps we're more like the nation of Israel. And perhaps David is much more like Jesus Christ. See, what David does to Goliath is a shadow of what God will do to an infinitely greater problem than a nine foot warrior. Just as Israel would find salvation as David marched out alone. To have victory over Goliath, so we find salvation as Jesus Christ marches to the cross alone to suffer for our sins. Just as Israel looked to David to bring glory to God through the slaying of the giant, so we look single-handedly to Jesus to defeat our sin as he suffers on the cross. Just as David and Goliath were in a battle, so God is in a battle with Satan. A battle that began in Genesis 3 when man fell and God promised Satan that he will have the victory. See, God said to Satan, I will bruise your head and you will bruise my heel. Now, I don't, you don't need to know a lot about fighting to know who's going to win in that fight. The person with the bruised head loses over the person with the bruised heel. And that promise we see fulfilled finally on the day that Christ comes and he dies on the cross. See, sin is defeated forever. We have victory over death in Jesus Christ. The enemy of God is finally taken down. What David did to Goliath, Jesus did to our sin. And we had no part to play in it. Jesus did it alone for us. And now you need to hear this this morning if you are not in Christ. See, there's a day coming when Jesus will return. And in the final consummation of the battle, he will have a complete victory over evil. And you get to choose to be on either the team of Satan that will lose in that day or the team of God in the way that you, you believe in God, the way that you are saved by God is by placing your faith in him. And on that day, God unites you to Jesus Christ and you are found in him so that in that day you have victory along with Christ. Your greatest giant has been slayed by him. Now the third thing we need to consider is that if we're going to be used by God, it requires that we have a supreme passion for restoration. And so you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, as we consider David as the, extreme, as the example of supreme passion leading to usefulness, perhaps some, the first thing our mind goes to is, well, what about David and Bathsheba? How can David be an example of having passion when the sin that he committed, perhaps, I would argue it's the darkest chapter in, his, in the whole Bible. How can this be the man that we use as an example of passion, and the answer is that in his restoration, we see how a supreme passion for God, even after our great failures in life, drives us back to a relationship with the Lord. 
Now, as we quickly survey the story of David and Bathsheba, I want you to notice something right off the bat. See, what eventually happens with Bathsheba is not a one-time event, but a series of sinful choices that David makes. It's the series of choices made by a man who clearly no longer has a passion for the Lord. This is not the David that we saw take down Goliath. And we know something's off because in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. See, what's wrong with this picture? David is a king. Spring is the time that kings go out to battle. But what does David do? He does nothing. He sends Joab in his place. But this is the man after God's own heart. Yet he no longer has a desire to see God glorified in his life, in his work. Instead, he stays at home. But not only does he stay at home, in verse 2 it says, It happened one, late one afternoon when he arose from his couch and was walking on the roof. See, David was not doing the work of the Lord. Instead, he was at home and he was, a na- he was napping. When he was a shepherd boy, he had an infinitely smaller task list, but he was busy pursuing the pleasure of the Lord. Now he is the king of a nation, and I'm sure he had better things to be doing in an afternoon than napping on his couch, but instead he is doing nothing for the Lord. I love what Spurgeon says about this. He says, lazy people tempt the devil to tempt them. See, the lesson for us in this is that when our passion for God is lit aflame, we commit our ways to him. But often what happens is when we don't have a burning passion to do something, in the immediate moment, we just don't do it. Take, for example, our devotions. We might wake up in the morning and we're tired. And so because we're tired, because it's hard, we decide it's not a passion of mine anymore and we don't do it. I love what John Piper says. He says when he wakes up in the morning, it feels like the devil's sitting on his face. See, the reality is, is just because you have a passion for God doesn't mean that it's not going to be difficult at times for you to live for God. What it does mean is that when you do live for God, you're going to experience the joy of doing it. And so, so many of us Christians have experienced this where we wake up and the last thing we want to do in that moment is read God's word. But we get out of bed and we crawl to the kitchen and we get coffee and we sit down and you know what happens? As soon as, it's happened so often, as soon as you open up God's word, this refreshment falls over you and you immediately know why you do this. This happens so, I talk to so many people in the life of our church who this happens for with praise and prayer. See, praise and prayer, we can be honest, is hard to get to. It's in the middle of the week. It's at the end of a long day. And yet, so often, what is the case is I talk to people afterwards who said, man, I was not going to come today, but I'm so glad that I did. Listen, do this as an experiment, okay? You can sit outside praise and prayer one day. You'll see a hundred tired parents who are working and taking care of at this church, like 18 kids And they come into prayer and praise and they're dragging their feet and they're so tired, but they pray with God's people and that ignites their passion for the Lord and they're restored, they're reinvigorated and they come out of the the school skipping. Just kidding, I've never seen anyone skip out of praise and prayer. But I think if we didn't fear man, a lot of people would. See, this is what happens with passion. If we have a passion for God, even if it doesn't feel like we should do it in the moment, once we do, so often it's the right thing. So often we find so much refreshment in that. Now fast forward to the end of chapter 11. Here we find David who's murdered Uriah to cover up his adulterous relationship and married Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. 
And it's been a year after this horrible, evil act, and still David has not repented. And so notice the words that end off chapter 11. It says, And the thing that David did displeased the Lord. See, all throughout David's life, he had been being used by the Lord because the Lord was pleased with him. And this comes as a shock to us that David would live in a way that did not please him. And David, after a year's time, has still done nothing to restore his relationship with the Lord. And so after a year of opportunity, we read in chapter 12, verse 1. Look at what it says. It says, and the Lord sent Nathan. Listen, church, you need to hear this. God, God's love for you is what causes conviction in your heart to come about. God convicts you of sin because he loves you. And because that is true, when you're convicted of sin, when you have that person in your small group who's pointing out ways that your life doesn't match up with your passion, when you're in a Sunday morning sermon and the Spirit is, is piercing you and you're being convicted, you need to lean into that. That's God's love for you. See, from all accounts, we can believe that if David were not, if Nathan were not sent to David, that David would continue to live in his sin. He had a year. And he did nothing about it, but God, out of his compassion for David, sent Nathan. And it's a lesson to us. We need to lean in to the conviction that the Lord brings us. We need to lean into brokenness and ask the Lord to speak to us in a way that is hard to hear, that we might be changed, that our relationship with him might be restored. I wonder if there's an area in your life this morning where God has been convicting you day after day, and you have been hiding it away. And you know there's things you need to change about your life. And you don't want to deal with it because it's hard. And I want to stand here with you, beside you, and confirm that it is hard, but it is God's love for you. And so lean into it. God loves you, and so he convicts you of sin. Now Nathan comes and he shares a parable with David. And the parable starts in chapter 12, verse 1. Nathan says this to David. He says, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd and prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So what Nathan does for David is provide an illustration, and David bites it hook, line, and sinker, so much so that in verse 5, he demands justice. He says this, he's angered, and his anger is greatly kindled against the man. He says to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he, deserve, he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing because he had no pity. Now notice the irony here, okay? The king of Israel, the one who is just, is making the judgment for this man. He must die, but death is not enough. He's also got to pay back the lamb fourfold to this man. Now it's interesting, and it's ironic, because the illustration that Nathan uses isn't even enough to describe how horrible David's sin was. See, if the illustration were actually David's sin, then that man would not only take the lamb, he would also kill the man whose lamb he took. What David did was even worse than what this man did, and so David deserved even worse than what this man allegedly deserved. And now come the famous and soul-crushing words of Nathan as he looks to David and he says, You are the man. 
I am speaking about you. Now, at this moment, David or Nathan completely disappears and the Lord comes forward to speak. Now, I want you to notice as we read what the Lord says, I want you to notice the grace of God in this. See, God completely passes over David's judgment and there will be consequence, but it will not end in David's death. And we begin to understand the weight of the problem when the Lord says in verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? See, the problem with David's sin was not just that he murdered Uriah, was not just that he had an adulterous relationship. The problem was that it was against the Lord. So it is with our sin. Our sin is against the Lord's will. And because of that, it ruptures our relationship with him. But this is the reason that David is a man after God's own heart. Look at verse 13. After the Lord finishes speaking, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David is not quick to repentance. But when it is finally pointed out to him, he is quick to do something about it. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. He understands that what he has done is a consequence, not just because the kingdom's being torn from his hands, not just because from this point on in his life, his life will go downhill, but because he has sinned against the glorious God of the universe. And Nathan responds with these words, now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. See, we know that David's Repentance was genuine, and we know that it restored his relationship with God because God responds with this merciful forgiveness. Now the Lord has put away your sin, and you shall not die. His relationship was restored with the Lord. And so my question is this, what does it require of us when our passion fails us, when we have a passion for other things, what are we required to do in order to restore our relationship with the Lord? And in order to find that out, I want you to turn to Psalm 51. See, in the following seven days, uh, seven days later, David would lose his son that he had with Bathsheba. And during that time, he would mourn and he would fast and he would worship. And in, among those seven days, he wrote Psalm 51. And it's astounding to me that he wrote Psalm 51 and then he placed it in the book of Psalms because he desired that we also, like him, knew how to restore our relationship with God after we failed so greatly. See, this is the Christian walk. We fail. We fall time and time again, and yet God, out of his grace, calls for us to find restoration in him. So the first thing I want you to see about a person with a passion for restoration is that they take the personal blame. They take the personal blame. And so look at Psalm 51 and take note of the personal nature of David's sin. I'm going to read it for you, and I'm going to emphasize how personal he says. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. See, David could have blamed Bathsheba. David could have blamed his circumstances that there is a roof where he could see Bathsheba. David could have blamed his nature that he was attracted to Bathsheba, but he did none of this. Instead, he came to grips with the truth that we must. We sin because we desire it. Every time you've disobeyed the Lord, you have walked down that path willingly. There's always been a way for you to get out, but instead you said, I want to walk down this. This will be advantageous to me. We did it because we wanted to. Yet we, often our reaction to sin can be, well, it was just a little one. It's not a big deal. 
Or our reaction can be to compare our sin to others and say, well, God doesn't really care about our sin because look at this guy over here. But David does none of that. Instead, he understood that his sin was great because of how great the God that he sinned against is. And so we must take the personal blame for sin, but the second thing we must do is think of the great sorrow of sin. See, throughout the story, sin is grievous to David because he sees it from God's perspective and he sees how uh, David and God's relationship is marred by the sin that he has in his heart. And so in verse 4 of Psalm 51, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, in order for us to have grief over our sin, true and, and real grief, we must have sorrow over it because it grieved God. Now, there's a lot of reasons for David to have sorrow over his sin. When David sinned, he lost a lot of earthly blessing. And yet, David's sorrow over his sin is not just because of the earthly consequences. David's sorrow over sin is because he had grieved God. David is sorrowful because he's sinned against the Lord. Likewise, in our sin, we ought to think about what the, the, our sin does to the Lord. See, we're told our sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit. We're told our sin was, uh, it was needed, it was placed on Jesus' shoulders for him to die with. Do you know that? Doesn't that make you hate sin more? That Jesus had to bear that specific sin, the weight of it on his shoulders as he died? Not only that, as Paul writes to Timothy, he tells us that our sin also uh, makes us practically useless in God's hands so that when we live holy lives, we're useful, but when we, we live disobedient lives, we're not useful to him. And so he writes in, in Timothy, to Timothy, he says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You see, sin has altered your relationship with the Lord. The third thing that you need to do in order to restore your relationship with the Lord is to believe in abundant grace. Now notice, as David prays, that he does so with the eager expectation that he can be delivered. And so look at verse 7. He says, he prays this, Lord, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I wonder how this might be a rebuke to many of us who don't believe in the abundant grace of the Lord. Who maybe we pray for forgiveness, but we, don't, we know our sin. We know how wicked we are. And in that moment, we don't believe that, that God would forgive us. We believe our sin is too great. And you see, the problem there is that you don't have enough faith in God's sacrifice for you. You don't believe that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was sufficient enough for you. And so often we believe that it's sufficient for other people's sin, but when we think about our sin, we don't think that God's grace could cover it. But David, he prays with an overwhelming belief in the grace that is in God. And for us, the grace that has been poured out for us in Jesus Christ. See, I imagine it like this. In Ephesians, Paul says that uh, the grace of God has been lavished over us in Jesus Christ. Now, I love to picture this as I picture that word lavish and think about it, I'm, I'm being lavished in grace. I imagine for a moment that I'm at the bottom of Niagara Falls, okay? And so this is like imaginary illustration land, and so things can happen that don't happen in the real world. But I'm standing underneath Niagara Falls, and for a moment, Niagara Falls just stops, okay? The water is like building up, and the pressure is building up, and I'm just standing, and I'm like, wow, this, this is pretty crazy. And there's a string that comes down from the top, and if you pull that string, in a moment, all that water comes rushing and flowing over you. It is an unimaginable amount of water that would flow over you in a second. It is unfathomable. This is what the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is like for the believer. 
It is lavished over you. And the way that you have access to it is through repentance. As you turn to God and you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you. You pull that string of repentance and the waters of grace wash over you and you are cleansed, your relationship restored. And so often we don't believe this. Lastly, we long for his restored presence. And so David prays in verse 10 and 11, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12, he says, Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. See, in order for us to have a restored relationship with the Lord, we must long for restored presence of the Lord. Repentance is the thing that restores our relationship with him. I heard this illustration once from uh, Pastor Robbie Simons of Harvest Oakville, and I want to share it with you because it's been so helpful in my battle against sin. And he said, uh, sin is a lot like when your drain is clogged in your bathroom. And if you have a wife with a lot of hair, this happens to you frequently as it does to me. And so he says it gets clogged and you need to do something about it because the water just can't go through. And so what you do is you grab a great product called Drano and you pour it in and it puffs up. And if you breathe in, you're like, I think I lost a few years off my life there. But it starts foaming up and then you, in a few minutes you come back, you pour the water on. And again, the flow of water can flow through the pipe. Now, sin in our lives is very much like that clog. It clogs our a relationship with the Lord so that we don't sense his presence anymore, so that we don't feel his nearness anymore. And this is what sin does, but what repentance does is clears the drain so that now our relationship with God is restored. And he invites us to do this on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Listen, God invites you today, this morning, would you repent of your sin? He's not waiting cranky when you come and say, oh, I knew you would come. He longs for you to repent. So much so that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And you know what the first message of Jesus Christ was? It was believe and repent. It wasn't get your act together. It was you believe and you repent of your sin because I am coming to make a way for you to be forgiven. Church, God longs for your repentance. And even in this moment in your heart, as you turn to him and say, God, I need forgiveness for this sin, he will restore his relationship with you. As we consider the example of David and the great sin of David, perhaps the argument could be made that he's not the greatest example of supreme passion. And yet, even in this fall, it models for us what God wants to do with his church for his own glory. See, God is redeeming for himself a people who are not worthy. And just as we say of David, he's not a great example because of how much he failed because of his sin with, David and, or with, with Bathsheba, so it can be said of us that we are not the greatest example because in our passion, we have had the passion for the wrong things. And we too have received mercy and grace. See, in that last day when we stand together, we will stand among each other and we will know of our great failure and we will each say to each other, hey, you don't deserve to be here. And you will say to me, you don't deserve to be here either. And we'll look to Jesus and we'll see that it was all by grace. None of us deserved it. None of us deserved it, but God used us 
because we had a passion for his glory that was made possible by the sacrifice of his son. And so we will all proclaim together, Christ is enough to use the greatest of all sinners. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, God, and ask you to, Lord, use us powerfully for your glory as a church. God, we just confess that our passion at times is for the wrong things. And Lord, we desire that you would use us powerfully. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be renewing our character into the image of Christ, that we might please you. Lord, we pray that you would be igniting in us a passion for your glory, that we might do mighty and great things for you like David did with Goliath. And Lord, we pray that when we constantly fail, Lord, you would remind us of grace, Lord, that we can be restored in Jesus Christ. God, thank you for him. And we praise and exalt him and ask that our lives would be spent to glorify his name. God, we thank you for this. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ.